Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. On that note, I'd like to give you the real rest of the story. The better half of Rick is, I'd like to present Rhonda MC. I'm sorry, Rhoda MC. (laughs) Well, you know, Rick stated earlier in his talk that um, he was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, Actually, I'm the best thing that ever happened to him. And I can back that up, and I think some of y'all will agree If you, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Does it not say that if it were not for Rhoda, that Rick would be dead or homeless? <laughs> um, I would just like to thank uh, John and Karen for being such a terrific hostess, and I would like to thank James and the committee for inviting me to be here. And I would like to thank the committee for the um, big book cover. I am a big book Al-Anon, and I love that cover for my big book, and I'm so appreciative of that and the snacks in the room. And I'm so grateful for the fellowship of good people like you. This is just, we get so much out of this when we go to conventions, and we just love the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Rhoda McCoy, and I am a grateful recovering Al-Anon. And I noticed that um, you all... um, say your sobriety date, and um, I have to say that my Al-Anon recovery birth date is July the 13th, 1991. So a few weeks ago, I celebrated 29 years. I mean, 20 years, 20 years. And um, it is the greatest gift that's ever happened to me, um, and it is the gift that keeps on giving um, as long as I keep working my program. So actually, my um, I was affected by the disease of alcoholism from the very day I was born to an alcoholic father who was a binge drinker. And actually, um, that was uh, when my love affair with alcoholics started. Um, I adored my father. I loved my father so much. Um, he died two days after my 10-year Al-Anon birthday. He had Alzheimer's. And, you know, after 10 years in Al-Anon, the deeds had been said and the words had, um, the words had been said and the deeds had been done. And, um, there was so much healing with my father and I, and I still to this day love my father dearly. Um, you know what? He had the, um, same disease that my husband had. He had a devastating disease of alcoholism. And in my opinion, it is the most devastating disease known to mankind. And I was a nurse for many, many years and I was around a lot of disease and a lot of illness, but I've never seen a disease as wretched as alcoholism, a disease that is so powerful that it will just take everything from you. You know, the big book says that alcoholism is a repressious, I'm sorry, my mouth is dry, repressious creditor, meaning that it will just take and take and take. I mean, it'll take your family, it'll take your job, it'll take your wealth, it'll take your health, it'll take your dignity, and it will take your soul. And that's what this disease did to my father, and that's what that disease did to my husband, and that's what that disease did to me, the Al-Anon, the one who did not drink or drug. It will just literally reach in, and it will leave you with this giant gaping hole, 
And I tried for so many years to fill that hole with everything, shopping, volunteer work, martyrdom, everything. And nothing would fill that hole. And God knows I tried. And then it wasn't until Al-Anon that I realized the reason I could never fill that hole is because it was a God-shaped hole. And the only thing I could fill that up with was God. And um, this is just a wonderful program. And, oh, my God, my greatest joy is trying to carry the message, you know. Um, To whom much is given, much is required, and I have been given a precious gift. And now my responsibility is to try to carry the message and help whoever I can. And um, so I'm going to tell you my story. It's my story, um, and I'm sticking to it. So um, I, um, again, I said that my father was the alcoholic, so I grew up in an alcoholic home. He was a binge drinker, and that's pretty confusing, you know, when you're, when you're young, because daddy would go through long periods of sobriety, and then he would be drunk for months and months on end, and I never could understand that. Um, I always thought it was my fault when he would drink again, because I thought, well, maybe if I was just a better kid, you know, a better daughter, maybe if I would help mom more around the house, or maybe if I make better grades in school, you know, maybe daddy wouldn't drink so much. So, it was all focused on the alcoholic once again. You know, what, how can I, what can I do? Is it my fault? How can I help him? How can I fix him? And, you know, I tried for years and years, um, you know, just to fix him. And then into my alcoholic marriage, I tried to fix my husband. And I lost myself because I was so obsessed with him and trying to fix him. And, and then, of course, going into nursing, I was a fixer and a caregiver. And I just tried so hard again. And, you know, that's what we do in Al-Anon. We just want to take care of everybody and fix everything. And I heard a story one time about these um, two alcoholics in this Al-Anon. And, you know, they had committed committed this heinous crime. And so it came time for them to go before the judge, and the judge um, sentenced them all, all to death by the guillotine. And so the day came that they had to die, and so the first alcoholic walked up to the guillotine, and he put his head down on the thing, and the guy reached up to pull the blade, and it wouldn't come down. And the judge said, oh, mercy, this has never, ever happened. I don't know what this is, but go, get out of here, and, you know, sin no more. You know, try to live a good, good clean life. And... So then the next uh, alcoholic walked up to the thing, and he was ready, you know, to die, and he laid his head on the thing, and the guy reached up to pull the blade, and it wouldn't come down. And the judge is like, okay, this is surely an act of God. I don't know what's going on, but go, sin no more, try to live a good life. And so then the Alanine came up, and she put her head down on the thing, and she's ready to die, and the guy reaches up to pull the blade, and she looks up and said, hey, I think I can fix that. <laughs> That's what we do in Al-Anon. We try to fix everybody and everything. So um, I, I, um, my husband was in um, AA recovery three years before I ever got into Al-Anon. I was just a little bit hard-headed. I was in so denial. It was all about him and his problem, and I was perfectly fine. So um, I battled that denial for about three years. But what, what's interesting, and again, this is I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love recovering alcoholics, and I love the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love my Al-Anon literature as well, and they complement each other very, very well. But um, for those three years, um, my husband um, was in recovery, and life was good for him, and 
um, he was he was doing he was working a good program. He had a sponsor. He started working with others. He was cleaning up the wreckage of his past. He was actually becoming a good husband. Can you believe that? <laughs> he was kind. He was compassionate. He was a good father. He was present. He was there. Um, and, you know, he was just turning his life around, and I couldn't believe it, and I was watching him, and I'm like, I was so pissed off he was happy, joyous, and free. <laughs> I mean, after putting me through all of that for 10 years, and now I dare you be happy, joyous, and free. Um, but he was, and I was getting more and more miserable by the day because I was so adversely affected by the disease of alcoholism. And um, he he encouraged me, borderline nagged me, you need to go to Al-Anon, you need to go to Al-Anon. And, you know, nobody can make us. I couldn't make him go to AA and get clean and sober any more than he could make me look at my life and get me in a program of recovery. But nevertheless, he tried. But the, the nice thing that he did is, and the thing that um, I will always respect and admire him for is he worked a good program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's a program of attraction, not promotion. And I was so attracted to his recovery that eventually I, I did find my way to Al-Anon. But before that, he would include me in all of the open AA meetings. Come go with me, Rhoda. Come go with me. And um, we would go to all of the potlucks and the birthday parties and over to his sponsor's house. And I was all around you guys. And I would sit there in the meetings and... Um, you're very special to me. I just want you to know that. Um, but I would sit there in the meetings, and you loved me, and you welcomed me, and you didn't question why I was there. And I even shared. You would let me share. And I think what you did for me, basically, you were probably just saying, oh, just put up with her a little bit longer. We're going to entertain her till she finds her own program. <laughs> and after three years, I did. But um, I'm forever grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous for what you guys did for my husband. And like Diana shared last night, for what you guys someday may do for my children, my four sons, and my grandchildren. So, um, you know, my daddy, bless his heart, went to treatment twice, but he never got this beautiful gift, never. Um, he got to the point where, you know, he was uh, couldn't drink anymore, but he became addicted to narcotics. And then, um, you know, dementia set in as he aged, and then he had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and he couldn't drink anymore, but he went to treatment twice. And, um, you know, I, I'm so sorry that he never got this gift. Um, so anyway, a little bit um, about what um, what happened in the beginning. Rick and I, um, we've been together a long, long time. And um, so I grew up in alcoholism. He grew up in alcoholism. And so we lived in small town Sheffield, Alabama. And so when I was uh, 15, I met this guy, um, at 15, who had braces on his teeth, and um, his hair was darker than the night. And when he looked at me, I melted like chocolate. <laughs> and I have to say, um, 39 years later, his hair is still darker than the night, and when he looks at me, I still melt like chocolate. But I have to say, after 39 years, it takes that chocolate a little bit longer to melt. <laughs> You need to work on that, Rick. <laughs> but we were so attracted to each other, and I was so attracted to him because he was everything that I felt I was not. He was the life of the party, and I was very shy. I always knew what color your eyes were, but I never knew what color your shoes were. I was literally born, on, uh, uh, grew up poor on the wrong side of the tracks. He was more affluent. Um, so... Um, 
he was the life of the party. He had so much confidence and self-esteem, and he was very popular, and he had a lot of friends. And so I was so attracted to that because when I was with him, I felt good about myself. And that's where that codependency started, I guess. But um, so we dated for six years, and um, after six years, um, we decided to get married because he promised he would take me places. And like he said this morning, he did. Oh, he took me lots of places, you know, food stamp office, uh, jails, <laughs> mental institutions. But um, it's been a hell of a ride. But I got to tell you, I wouldn't have missed it for nothing. Um, so anyway, we, we finally got married. And, um, you know, um, it was it was tough because it, you know it, as we the first year of our marriage I should have seen that we were headed for trouble because his drinking got a lot worse after the death of his brother um, it was just an excuse for him to drink more and more and so it, the first ten years of our marriage was just pure hell you know I heard an Alan I mean an AA speaker share at a conference one time and this AA speaker said you know just because we get in recovery does not mean that God opens the gates of heaven to let us in but he sure opens the gates of hell to let us out. And so that's what recovery has done for us. But those first 10 years were just, oh, it was just it was just hell. It was just chaos. And, you know, in Al-Anon, I learned that it wasn't all his fault. Can you believe that? <laughs> and, and I didn't have to be a victim anymore. And I contributed just as much to the chaos as he did. Um, and um, so, you know what, I, I've learned a lot, you know, coming into the, the program. Recovery has taught me so much. But so anyway, we, um, we were married about two years, and um, our first child was born, Richie. Richie's 31 years old. Um, he is in Richmond, Virginia right now. He started dental school about two weeks ago. And prior to that, he, um, he was in the Navy. He was a Hebrew linguist. He got out of the Navy. He used his GI Bill and went to Florida State. And now he's in dental school. He has a fiance named Maria who's also in dental school. And they will be taking over her mom's dental practice in, um, Williamsburg, Virginia someday. And, um, so our first child, Richie, was born. And, um, that um, that was um, we were very very poor and impoverished. Applied for food stamps, WIC program, couldn't get that. Just the whole disease of alcoholism. You don't really know where the money goes. If the money was ever there, or was it not there, or did we? What happened? You know, you just grow up that way um, in the disease. So Richie was born, and then. Um, Rick decided after the death of his wrongful death of his brother, he wanted to go to law school. So we moved from Sheffield, Alabama to Birmingham, Alabama, where he went to law school. And he was working and going to law school at night. And uh, we're raising this um, child, Richie. And then um, uh, two years later, two two years and nine months, our second son, Mike, was born. Now, Mike is uh, 28 years old. He's a search and rescue swimmer in the Navy. He and his wife uh, live in Jacksonville, Florida, and um, they just in October, this coming October, be one year, gave us our first grandchild. Her name is Tyler Ray, and she is the light of my life. And I just, my husband and I both melt when we look at this little girl. Um, because our blood flows through her, and that is just, you can never, people ask me, what does it feel like to have a grandchild, and you can't verbalize it. You cannot, you just have to experience that baby. So Mike is, um, 
he is in the Navy because we barely got him out of high school. Um, he started drinking and drugging uh, weed, especially at the age of 13, which we did not find out that, you know, as, as time goes on, you know, they share more and more, more with us. But he was in a lot of trouble, and we knew we couldn't, we had to do something with him before he got a, 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 back, a legal problem. So he's, and he has excelled. He's been in the Navy eight years, and whether he drinks or not, that's his business. My Al-Anon programs tell, tells me not to ask. That's between him and his God. And my Al-Anon tells me the best thing I can do is be an example for him. And I'm really grateful for my Al-Anon program with him in particular because all those years he lived with us in our home and he was drinking and drugging and we couldn't get him out of bed for school and we'd go down in his room and open the door and he would just reek of alcohol and we would find all the marijuana seeds where they had burned holes all in the the car seats and the clothes and we found the bong in the trunk and all that stuff that we went through. Even though I wanted to shake him and choke him, my Al-Anon program told me I needed to, to, that he had a disease and I needed to treat him with compassion and respect. And the reason we have a relationship today is because I loved him through that. Um, and um, I never berated him. I never nagged him, and I treated him with respect. And, you know, I remember, um, I remember early on in my um, Al-Anon recovery working with this lady, and we were at a meeting, and I was just early, early on, and I was still had so much anger. I think that was my number one emotion. I was so dadgum angry. And um, she told me, she said, you know what, Rhoda, your husband has a disease. It's called alcoholism, and you need to treat him with compassion. And I was taken aback, and she said, now, what if he had cancer or diabetes? Would you treat him that way? And I looked at her and I said, well, hell, if he had cancer or diabetes, he wouldn't be acting that way. (laughs) So um, it was recommended to me um, by my very first sponsor um, to go to open AA meetings. And I'm really grateful. You know, God puts people in our life that we need at that moment. And when I came into Al-Anon, I was totally spiritually sick. And so my sponsor was the most spiritual woman I think I have ever met. And she... She made it happen for me. The light bulb went off, and she got me on my road to recovery. And she was a big book Al-Anon. Therefore, 20 years later, I'm still a big book Al-Anon. I love the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it does speak to my condition. And every time I read it and I share it with a new sponsor, I see something in there that I never knew was in there. And um, she told me um, that she went to open AA meetings, and I might want to consider open AA meetings. Well, I'd already been going to open AA meetings with my husband. And that's another reason I'm grateful um, for Alcoholics Anonymous because, and I hope that there's always open AA meetings. I mean, I respect the traditions and the closed AA meetings, but I'm always grateful for open AA meetings because um, I hear you guys share. And when I hear you go around the room and you share of everything you've lost, you've lost your children, you know, you've lost a spouse, you've lost your mom, you've lost your dad, you've lost your job, you've lost your home, you've lost your car, you're going to be sentenced to prison. All these things reiterates to me that this is a disease. Nobody gives up all those things. Nobody would give up all those things intentionally. You give those things up because you have a disease. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous taught me. And it gave me compassion. And as I heard all of you share, I learned compassion. And you know what? My anger just started melting away. How can you be angry with someone who has a disease? I mean, really, how can you? You know, initially you are, you work through it, but then you come to realize, you know, alcoholics suffer. My daddy suffered. My husband suffered. I watched my husband suffer for 10 years. For 10 years, every single day, 
he wished he would die. For 10 years of our marriage, every night when I would go to bed, I didn't know to pray on my knees at that time. I would lay in bed with my hands folded, and every night I would pray, God, please let him die or get him sober. And I meant every bit of it. Number one, he was miserable, and he was making me miserable. But you know what? Sometimes, sometimes, you know, they say God, God says yes. Sometimes he says no. And sometimes he says, you gotta be kidding. <laughs> no, sometimes he says not right now. And so the time, it wasn't time yet. But I thank God for, for answered prayer and unanswered prayer. But anyway, um, I learned compassion. So when I was dealing with my second son, I was able to treat him with dignity. Um, and I'm really grateful for everything that Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me. And then, um, so we had these two children, and Rick's trying to get through law school, and his disease is getting worse and worse and worse, and then we're in Birmingham. And um, finally he gets to a point where um, then we, um, we moved to, uh, from Birmingham, we moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and uh, the disease just got worse and worse. We moved into this neighborhood uh, with these two children, and we moved into a, a nice neighborhood because by this time, Rick had got a job in pharmaceutical sales, and we thought we were high rollers, and we were making big money, and we thought it was just awesome. It really wasn't big money, but we thought it was big money. When you have nothing and then you have a little, that's a lot, right? So we bought this nice house in a nice neighborhood down the street from the country club, had an in-ground pool, big old satellite dishes. Remember the real big satellite dishes that we used to have? And so we thought we were just living, you know, high on the hog, and, you know, we just thought it was great, and we were house poor, and we never went on another vacation ever. We never ordered pizza. We were house poor. And that's another thing recovery has taught me is you live below your means. That's a spiritual principle. Live below your means, and uh, what a freedom that is, you know. So um, the other interesting thing that had to be really a struggle for Rick is the house we bought was right next door to the First Baptist Church preacher. So we became friends with them, and, you know, I'm in my disease, and I'm just crazy as a loon, and Rick's in his disease, and, you know, he's just messed up and high all the time. And so we thought, well, okay, well, we got to put forth this image, and we got to join their church, and I became friends with the wife. And so he was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, and so we would get all dressed up, and I'd dress my two little boys up, and Rick and I would dress up, and um, he was Ward, and I was June, and they were Wally and Beaver, and <laughs> We looked really good. We we looked good. We were just sick as hell, but we looked really good. <laughs> we were so messed up, and so we um, we wanted the, the our neighbors, the preacher and his wife, to know we were at church and we're good people. So we would get there really really early so we could get a seat right on the front row, right in front of the podium, and right where her, she sang in the choir so she could see us in church. And we would sit there and we would look so good. We were the poster children, I guess, for the Southern Baptist family. So um, we looked really good and. We would sit there and we would listen and we would sing songs and then we would hug everybody and shake hands and everybody, we wanted everybody to see that we were there and we were good people and um, then we would go home and um, we would yell and scream and contemplate suicide and it, we went on like that for a long, long time and it was, it was hard to live up to that, wasn't it? 
Um, and then, um, you know, my disease was getting a lot worse at that point, too, and I was acting out, and I was trying to fill that hole, and the number one way I, well, there's several ways I did that, but one of them was my volunteer work. I was such a martyr, and oh, isn't she just so wonderful, and because I was so, feeling so bad on the inside, I wanted you to know how good I was on the outside, and so I did, oh, I was just so overextending myself, which I still have to work on that balance, so if any of you Al-Anons how to do that, I, you know, it's still hard for me to get that balance, but it's all or nothing. But um, I would volunteer. I was a Cub Scout leader, and I was, um, oh, my God, March of Dimes and all the leukemia societies, the American Cancer Societies, and all the, the PTO secretary and all this stuff I would do so you would think I was... She is such a good person, you know. That's what I wanted you to think about me. And you would come to my house and, oh, I always felt less than. You know, I grew up that way and the disease, I always felt less than you. And I always felt like I had to work really, really hard. Like Marcel shared last night, you have to work really, really hard to make others think that you're as good as them. And so you would come to my house, and this is how insane I was. I would love for you to come to my house today. There's dust bunnies everywhere, and I do not care. But <laughs> that's recovery, isn't it, al That's recovery when you get to that point. But um, I would get on my hands and knees, and I would go all around the house with a rag, and I would clean all the dust off the dust boards. So I ask you, have you ever gone to anybody's house and looked at their dust boards? No, I don't think so. So that's the insanity of my disease. You know, everything had to be so perfect because everything was so imperfect on the inside. And um, the other thing I did was shop for that instant gratification. I was so miserable and I was so unhappy and I was so sad and I thought it was all his fault only to realize it wasn't. It was my own spiritual malady. Um, so I would shop and um, I spent money that we did not have. And I was a nurse and I wore scrubs every day. And I didn't need all those clothes. Do you hear me? <laughs> But nonetheless, I bought them, and I would go buy stuff, and I would hang them in the closet, and I wouldn't want Rick to know because it would be a big fight again about me spending money, and so I would hang them in the closet, and I would leave them in there for, you know, days, and then finally after a few days, I'd bring it out, and he'd say, oh, honey, is that new? And I would say, no, and it wasn't. I've had it for two or three days, right? So it got to the point where I um, I just didn't have enough space in my closet for all those clothes. And some of the things I bought, I just bought to feel good for that moment at the cash register. I'd put it in the closet and forget I had it and never bring it out. But So I started storing some of my clothes in the guest room closet. Isn't that funny? We had a guest room, but nobody, who would come see us? We were crazy. <laughs> I mean, seriously, who'd want to stay at our house? We were fighting and... So um, I would put the clothes in that closet, and I would open the doors to hang all the clothes to hide from Rick. And I noticed at the same time he was hiding something in there for me. And there would be on either side, there was these big, remember when the grocery stores would give you the big paper brown bags, and there was like three stacked on top of each other on this side, and, and they were all full of crushed beer cans. And he was hiding those, I thought, from me, but then I realized later, no, he wouldn't put those out at the trash because he was hiding them from the First Baptist Church preacher. So. <laughs> So we did that little song and dance for a long time, and we each we each had our own defects, and it was just crazy. I just remember how crazy it was. And then I remember it got to the point where his job was threatened, and he was fearful for his life, actually. And he came to me, and he says, Rhoda, this is, you know, we did this for a long, long time, 10 years. And uh, he finally came up to me, and he said, honey, he said, um, I think I need to check myself into treatment. 
for alcoholism and drug addiction. And I'm like, what? You don't have a, pr- a problem? And I can't believe because every night for 10 years I prayed he would die or get sober, but yet my denial, I just could not see through that. So he checked himself into treatment. And he still had, it was almost like he had to prove to me he had a problem, even though the beer cans were there. And then he took me by the hand, and, and I knew about all the pills in the storage room in the garage. And, oh, I just knew what a nightmare that was. I would see the empty little pill cases all over the house. And then he took me in his closet, and he pulled all those out. And then he pulled out all these little empty bottles of codeine cough medicine. And and I was thinking, and I had a little flashback. I remember seeing all those empty little bottles all over the house. And I was thinking to myself, and I, you know, I don't remember anybody coughing, you know, and he, he was taking it to get high, not because he was coughing, so he kind of had to prove to me. So he checked himself into into treatment um, in Hillcrest in Birmingham, and um, that's when things started turning around, and that's when I started watching his feet like he shared this morning. Recovery, I don't want to hear your words. Oh, my God, I heard his words for 10 years. I don't want to hear the words. So I started watching his feet, and he started getting recovery, and that's when he was becoming happy, joyous, and free, and um, we moved to Omaha, Nebraska, and I just couldn't believe all these new friends he had. He was being childlike. He was throwing football. He had all these friends, and Again, I was just getting angry all over again. I'm like, I dare him. So, you know, he, he, he never let up. I mean, he just kept encouraging me. Actually, he nagged the hell out of me. Okay, let's tell it like it is. It wasn't encouragement. He nagged me. But you know what? you got to find your own way. And, you know, but before that, and he put a lot with, uh, up with a lot from me, too, because I was bringing all these First Baptist Church preachers and deacons over trying to save his soul and exercise him and get this out of him, this demon out of him. So he put up with a lot, you know, as well. So we, we moved to Omaha, Nebraska, uh, because, you know, his company, um, he sued the company, and to get even, the company sent him to Omaha, Nebraska, thinking he would quit. But what they didn't know, it was a hotbed of recovery. I mean, Boys Town is there. It's a pocket of enthusiasm for AA and Al-Anon. It is just, oh my God, we would still be there maybe if it wasn't for the weather. But I loved Omaha, Nebraska, and that's where our journey started. So I remember um, my first Al-Anon meeting um, was in July 13th, 1991, and um, I was a little bit nervous, and I always pay attention when newcomers walk through the door because I remember how scared and frightened I was. Even though I'd been around AA for three years, I was scared to go into the Al-Anon meeting, and I felt uncomfortable, and, and it takes a lot of courage. So I hope when newcomers come in there that you stretch out your hand or you reach out and ask if you can give them a hug because it takes a lot for them to walk through those doors. And none of us, when we come through those doors, are in a good place, spiritually, financially, none of us physically were not in a good place and so I remember going to a meeting with Rick it was concurrent AA and Al-Anon and so he went in his room and I went in mine it was in Ralston Nebraska and there were six women in there and I went in and I sat down and I remember exhaling I really did exhale and I sat down and um, the reading all we had at that point was the blue ODAT book and um, the reading for July 13th said something, I'm paraphrasing, um, it is not mere chance that brought me to Al-Anon. I was led to it by an unknown power out of the need of love and comfort and sharing of others like me. And when they read that, I'm like, whoa, no, 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 you know, this is really strange. And so um, they read that reading and they shared. To this day, I cannot tell you what they shared. I don't know what the topic was. I don't, I couldn't hear. I don't know what they said. All I know is what I felt. And I felt hope. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was home. I really did. I felt hope. 
And um, that was my very first meeting, and uh, I've been going back ever since. And um, I love Al-Anon. It has changed my life. And, you know, today I know what I am. I am an Al-Anon. My, my life has been adversely affected by someone else's drinking or, and drugging. Um, and I'm forever grateful um, for AA and Al-Anon and what they've done for our family. So we're rocking and rolling. Eventually I get this sponsor who is just amazing. I start working the steps. Um, and um, she moves away after about a year and says she can't sponsor me long distance anymore. And I'm like, oh, so I got another sponsor. And remember I said God puts people in our life that we need at that time. Well, this first sponsor was so spiritual, and I was spiritually sick. I needed her in my life. So I got another sponsor. She was very practical. She was very logical. And, you know, one of our Al-Anon slogans is think. You know, just think. And um, so she taught me a lot about being practical, about thinking things through, about not overreacting. She taught me how to plan. She taught me to always have a plan B, they talk about in our literature. And she was good, and she served me well during that time, and she was what I needed. And then um, I got another sponsor, and she was uh, like four feet, two inches tall. She was about 20 years older than me, and she was so lighthearted. And, you know, the book talks about we become childlike, not childish, but childlike. And I was so serious all the time. Everything was serious, you know. I had no laughter and no fun in my life. I was so burdened. I had to, you know, I was just, I had to handle everything. And there were, my husband asked me one time, he says, you never laughed much. And I'm like, well, hell, nothing was funny. I mean, <laughs> you know, and so she taught me how to have fun and how to laugh. And she taught me how to see joy in things. And she would wear funny hats, and she didn't care what people think. And I, I'm a hat person today, and I don't care what people think. And I wear big floppy hats, and I love it, and I have fun. And um, I laugh a lot today. And, you know, I was at an AA meeting one time, and they had a little thing taped on the front podium, and it said, Lord, teach us to laugh again, but don't ever let us forget that we cried. And uh, we laugh a lot today. It's a serious, serious disease. People in Al-Anon, I have known them to die, to commit suicide. People in AA, we have known them to commit suicide. And it's very serious. But at the same time, we can laugh. And why shouldn't we? Because the big book says, you know, if newcomers saw no joy in our existence, they wouldn't want to come back because we are not a glum lot. And it's a program of attraction, not promotion. And if they did not see that our life was better why would they come, you know? So anyway, um, so my life started to change, and then this little gal, was. She, she said something really profound to me one time because she was only four foot two, and I share this a lot. Um, because she was so short, she could never reach the kitchen cabinets in her kitchen, so she had one of those little tiny fold-up step stools with three steps, and she said, every single day I take step one, two, and three to get up to my kitchen cabinets. And, you know, that's what we do. You know, I can't, he can, I think I'll let him. Every single day we take steps one, two, and three. So she fulfilled, you know, a need for me at that time. So God has given me through sponsorship everything I needed. And now for the past seven years I've had a sponsor who is 75 years old. And she moved um, she moved down to where I live from Minnesota many, many years ago. And she's 75 years old, and she will run circles around me. I mean, she is the most energetic person, and I love her dearly. And um, we've done a lot of fun things together. We've chaired conventions, and we've done so much together and traveled together. And I love her dearly, and God has put her in my life for a reason, too. And I think that reason is I can never become complacent, never. You know, if you're not moving forward, 
You know, you're going backwards. There's no such thing as standing still, and we can never become complacent. And she is so active. She goes to like four or five Al-Anon meetings a week, and she's 75 years old, and she still works, you know. And I, I need that example in my life, and I love her dearly. So God has always given me what I needed. And so um, Omaha was good for us. And then uh, not too long into recovery, um, I forget, maybe six years in recovery? I can't remember exactly. But... Um, all of a sudden, you know, I grew up with these two children in the disease of alcoholism. And, you know, I had a lot of guilt coming into Al-Anon as a parent, as a mom. And I just felt guilty. I, I wasn't a good mom because I was so preoccupied with my alcoholic and what he was doing. And I was so obsessed over him. I neglected myself and I neglected my children. And I never abused my children physically, but I emotionally abused my children. And I verbally abused my children. I was a yeller and a screamer and a rager. And I would throw dishes at the drop of the hat. And I would hit my husband any chance I got, you know. And I, that's the way I was. I was very angry. And so my children, um, they grew up with me as their mom like that. And I was a rager and a screamer. And um, I was very strict. Um, they um, they had to go to bed at a certain time because if Rick came home and I didn't know what condition he would be in, I needed them to be tucked away in bed so I could fight or flight or whatever I needed to do. And, you know, I don't care if you had a, had a bath last night. You're going to have a bath again because if you show up for school or daycare with dirt under your fingernails, what would they think about me as a mom? And I don't care if you're hungry or not. It's 4 o'clock in the evening and you're going to eat your dinner because, again, I didn't know if I would have a chance to feed them later. And so that's the way it was I never felt like I was a good mom and emotionally I was in the room but physically I was never there with them and so um, when I got in Al-Anon I didn't feel like I was a good mom and they said you know what I had so much guilt and they're like I made living amends to my children and continue on a daily basis to make living amends to my children and um, they said you know Al-Anon is such a, a loving gentle program and I'm glad. Um, I really didn't need a kick in the butt, you know. I needed somebody to hug me and tell me it was going to get better. And they were kind and loving, and they said I did the best that I could at that point in time. And I believe that today. And so um, I'm in recovery now, and I've got these two children, and they're 16 and 13, and I'm making a living amends to them. And all of a sudden, I end up pregnant. And we couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh, my God. I, we thought we were done with our family, and I was on the pill, and he, he took a lot of birth control pills, but he didn't take all of them. <laughs> he saved some for me, so I ended up pregnant with little Matthew, and his name's Matthew because he, it means gift from God, and he's 16 years old. Well, he'll be 16, year old, 16 years old in a week, and it means gift from God, and we were just so blessed to have this baby in our life, and then when he was two months old, he had a heart murmur, and they said, oh, it's probably nothing. We'll check him again later, and then they checked him again and did an ultrasound, and he had two holes in his heart. Well, oh, my God, I'm feeling so guilty again. What did I do when he was in, in utero? Did I do something wrong? Is it my fault? I'm a nurse. Oh, my God, I'm an Al-Anon. i got to fix him. How can I fix him? And they said about 50% of the time, those holes will heal up on their own. 50% of the time, he'll have to have surgery. Well, I thought that was pretty good because... Um, you know, I'm in Al-Anon, and I'm working a really good program, and I'm sponsoring people, and Rick's working a good program, and he's sponsoring people. And, you know, God's, God's going to fix his heart. I know it. God's going to fix his heart. So when he was, we prayed for God's will every single day, even though I, I knew I was supposed to pray for God's will, but God knew inside I was saying, please fix his heart, please fix his heart. And so... Um, when he was two years old, he got really, really sick. He went into congestive heart failure. We had to rush him to the hospital, and he ended up having open-heart surgery. 
And that was very, very hard for me. That was, um, that was a lesson for me and let go and let God. It was no longer an abstract let go and let God. It was a physical let go and let God because, um, we took him to the hospital the morning of surgery and they sedated him and I'm holding him in my arms the whole time till he falls asleep. And then the OR nurse comes out to get him and, um, I physically had to let go, and I couldn't. And she said, give me the baby, and I couldn't. And she said, give me the baby, and I couldn't. And she's like, you got to give me the baby. And um, so I physically had to let go. And as a mom and a nurse and an Al-Anon, that was so hard to let my child go. But um, I did. And, you know, before that, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't believe we were having to go through that. I just knew that God was going to fix his heart. And so I remember two days before his surgery, I woke up early one morning, like two o'clock in the morning. I was so angry and I couldn't sleep. And so I just, Rick was asleep and I went in the bathroom and I got on my knees and I started out praying, but then I was yelling and screaming at God. And I'm like, why are we having to go through this? I said, you were so powerful. Why don't you just fix his heart? We're trying to live a good life and we're trying to work this program. Why don't you fix his heart? For crying out loud, you made the Rocky Mountains and the sun and the moon and the oceans and the stars and you're so powerful and I know you can fix his heart and I'm so angry and why don't you just do it? And I was so angry and I just prayed and prayed and kind of got through all that and so I was able to let go and give her the baby and he had surgery and Came out of surgery fine, and you know, but as a nurse, I knew what they were doing. He was on the heart lung bypass. They split his little chest open, and I'm seeing all that. And but you know what? They fixed his heart. And um, the day after, um, the day after his surgery, he was running all over the unit, playing in the um, the little uh, play area. And it's amazing how miraculous children heal. And so he, it was just a wonderful experience. Um, we got through that. And the thing that the lesson for me is. My prayer was answered. God fixed my baby's heart. Not the miraculous healing like I thought, but he fixed it through the hands of the surgeons. And, you know, he, he, he always takes care of us, and he gives us what we need, and I'm so grateful for that. And the other good news is uh, we kept following up with the pediatric cardiologist every other year, and his last appointment was two years ago in Mobile, and the, lady, the doctor did all the tests and everything and looked at him, and she came out, and she said she looked at the ultrasound and everything and said, you know what? If I did not know he had had open-heart surgery, I, I would have never known anything was wrong with this child. So I kept it together, you know, because Matt was right there, and I didn't want to fall apart, and you know. But I, I kept it together. But that was just the greatest news ever. And so now he's 16 years old, and he doesn't even have to go back anymore. He's not on endocarditis precautions, and he's a picture of health. And he just um, he had a summer job this year. He um, he was a lifeguard down at the water theme park in Gulf Shores. So he he went through lifeguard training and CPR training. So he's fabulous. He's just uh, he, I wish I had 10 kids like him. He is such a blessing. I tell him all the time, I love you so much, Matt. I, I wish I had 10 kids just like you. He's precious. He is, I, I mean, I, I actually think he's seen the face of God. So he's precious to me, as they all are. But then, um, so he was born, and Rick and I are in the program, and we're thinking, well, he's going to grow up like an only child, and I'm not 40 yet, but I'm pushing it. And um, I'm like, well, do you want to have another one? And he's like, well, yeah. So, um, you know, we prayed for God's will if he wants us to have another child. So um, we didn't do anything to prevent a pregnancy, and we did everything you need to do to get a pregnancy. <laughs> a lot. 
so Ryan was born. They're 13 months apart. And again, Ryan was born on Rick's eight-year AA birthday. So this is amazing. So, you know, the, 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 the lesson is, or not the lesson, but just to show you how God is so good to me, um, I never felt like I was a good mom before recovery. But in recovery, God said, I think, he said, you know what, Rhoda? You're living a spiritual life today, and you're trying to help others. And I'm really pleased with the young woman that you have become. And I'm going to give you another shot at this thing, because I don't think you're going to mess it up this time. So he was able to let me be a mom and let Rick be a dad in recovery. And it's been so totally different. And I'm just, I have so much gratitude. Um, I should have warned you all. I hope you all noticed when I came up here with Kleenex. That was your warning to to leave. (laughs) But anyway, I just, you know, before recovery, I cried a lot. I cried tears of pain and tears of misery. And today it's mostly tears of joy and tears of gratitude. So I have these four children now. And, um, you know, life is is good today. Um, I One thing that I did that I do want to share that was a really profound, profound thing for me too is um we grew up poor on the wrong side of the tracks literally and no one in my family had ever gone to college and my dad that I love so dearly and think of almost every day um my dad was illiterate he could not read or write because when he was a young boy he had he couldn't go to school because he had to help his mom and dad pick cotton and they grew up they grew up poor as well so my dad and a couple of his brothers never learned how to read or write and you know i i know that's not why my dad never got recovery but he never had the gift of being able to read the big book of alcoholics anonymous and we have that opportunity to read that big book every single day but sometimes we don't but he um he never got to read the big book and he was illiterate and um i used to be so ashamed of that when kids at school would tease me you know that my dad couldn't read or write. but um, So we grew up that way. My mom, um, she never graduated because I was born when she was 14 years old. And she um, never went to school, but she did go back and get a GED, and she went to a one-year nursing program. So education was not stressed in our family, and we grew up with the assumption that we would um, not go to college. I think most kids grow up with the assumption that they will go to college. So as a, I never went to college. So as, a, as an adult, um, before my last two children were born and we were living in Omaha, my husband um, said, uh, and I was a nurse, by the way, but my, my husband said, why don't you go to college and get a degree? And I just couldn't believe it. That I, I never even thought I was worthy. I never thought I could do it. I always felt less than, never good enough, never smart enough. I didn't think I could do it. And so my husband was so wonderful and supportive of me to go to college. And then I had a kind and loving sponsor who was very, um, very supportive. So I went to the University of Nebraska. But first I took baby steps. I started out at a small community college to get my feet wet. And then I transferred to the University of Nebraska. And I got um, a bachelor's degree in biology and chemistry. And I tried to get in graduate school, and I interviewed both times, but I didn't. And I think I know now why, because little Matthew was the bun in the oven at the time, and I didn't even know it, and I would have probably had to have dropped out of that graduate program. But So I went to college, and um, you know what? That was powerful for me. That was very empowering. It's amazing what we can do in recovery. We can do things that we never, ever dreamed we could do. Um, and so I have a fabulous job today. 
And um, I'm really grateful for that. I'm really grateful um, that in my job today, I work for a biotech company, and uh, I promote products for uh, cancer, for leukemia. And I get to call on doctors and nurses, so I still feel like I, from a nursing background, I still get to interact with doctors and nurses. But there's another reason that that's really important to me today, and that's because um, many years ago, uh, before Rick and I got married, we decided to strike it rich in Houston, Texas, and we moved back in the 70s to Texas, and we lived together in an apartment um, where we basically almost starved to death. And um, I remember um, I remember losing 30 pounds, and uh, my mom had to remake my wedding dress because we were hungry. And um, I was a nurse at that time, and he was bouncing and bartending, and you know all of our money went to alcohol and whatever recreational stuff he was doing and um, paying the rent, and there just never was a lot of money. And um, so I was a nurse, and I remember going to work as a nurse, and I remember after report I would volunteer, please let me, uh, let me be the one to pick up the trays. I can pass the trays out and pick up the trays, you know, out of the rooms because I knew if I would go in to pick up the trays after all the patients were finished, I could sneak food off of those trays and eat um, after the patients had finished, and so wonder I didn't get all kind of diseases because they were sick, and I'm eating after them because I'm so hungry. And I'm stuffing food in my pockets, and you know there were some nurses there that were older than me. I was real young, and they knew. Um, I think they knew I was hungry, and um, it was obvious I kept losing weight, and um, so they took me under their wing, and they didn't want to embarrass me. And they would say, we're going to go down and have, have a break. Let's go down and get a little breakfast. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. And they knew I didn't have any money. And, and they no, no, come on, our treat. So sometimes I would go down there and they would buy me breakfast. And sometimes Carolyn would invite us over to her home and she would cook for us. And uh, Rick was eating food out of dumpsters. Um, and he was stealing food in grocery stores. And we were just really hungry. And food is a passion of mine today. And uh, I enjoy feeding people today. Um, we have we have people in these fellowships that are hungry. We have people who are struggling and to whom much is given, much is required. And, you know, the 24-hour book from Hazleton says, give freely of your time, your money, your food, and your comfort. And um, I'm all about that today, you know we got to give it back to keep it. And so we do a lot of fellowship things at our house, and it all involves food. And I love cooking pancake breakfast and cookouts, and we have these big parties. And I just love to see people eat, you know, and, and not be wasteful. So the reason I'm so grateful for my job today is I had the opportunity to go to Houston, Texas, several years ago with my job, and I never made amends to that woman in particular, Carolyn Miller, who took me under her wing and fed me and was so good to me. And um, so I pulled out the Houston phone book, which is this thick, in my hotel room, and I called every Carolyn, and her husband's name was Gordon Miller, in the phone book to try to make amends to her. And um, I could not get in touch with her after calling every single one of those. So the way I make amends to her as a nurse, and for all she did for me, is I take real good care of my nurses today, and I feed nurses today. <laughs> I'm allowed to go in and take breakfast and lunch, and I get to feed nurses. It's a little thing, but it's a big thing to me. 
But anyway, I have so much gratitude in my life today, and I know I'm forgetting so many things that I wanted to share, but sometimes when you're up here and the emotion and the gratitude wells up, you kind of forget. (laughs) So I know I forgot some stuff, but um, I'm going to close, I think, about five minutes early and um, just let you all know how much I appreciate you and how grateful I am to Alcoholics Anonymous and um, and to my program because I know Sunday... Rick and I won't be able to help our children as much as we'd love to and as much as the example we set, but you guys can help our children, and, you know, they all have that disease. Um, they're, all, they're all predisposed to that. So I just want to say thank you for listening, and um, God bless you, and I love you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.